You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Uh, also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Okay, we have lots of great listener questions to get to this week, so let's get started. We begin with Peter who writes, what are the best ideas for Oak Island drinking games? Take a swig every time someone says what? Bobby Dazzler, Holy Shimoli, Swamp, Templar, maybe play Oak Island Bingo. You can get a 5x5 five five grid, write in 24 most common phrases, central is wild card, see who is first to get five in a row. Peter, my wife's idea for this has always been to drink every time you see some one of the guys nod in agreement. <laughs> The problem with that is, uh, problem with her idea is that the game really does run the risk of killing whoever is playing it, and who wants that, right? Now, how about for Oak Island Bingo? You also include phrases like, uh, or maybe phrases and some, maybe some actions you see on camera too, like uh, a speakerphone call, or or maybe someone carrying a giant plastic bag of dirt, or uh, maybe trips to Carmen Legs blacksmithing shop, or maybe a double score when someone says something like, that's Oak Island for you. There's so many ideas. I'll get my wife on it, Peter. She's, she's good at this kind of thing, much better than I am. Thank you for your suggestions. Any Oak Island games you, you guys have out there, you know, send them in. I'd love to hear them. Anyway, let's go to Jeff who writes, I am listening to your podcast and enjoying it tremendously. I just listened to the episode on the 90-foot stone from January 2020. I particularly enjoyed the suppositions related to the fictional account by James DeMille. Now, I can never... Somebody, some people say DeMille. Some people say DeMille. I say DeMille. <laughs> it occurred to me that as a prominent Canadian professor and author of the 1800s, his papers, diaries, writing journals may be preserved in the special collections of the Canadian universities he was associated with. It's also possible he gives some insight background into his published work in his private papers. For example, maybe there's a personal diary relating some experiences during his time visiting Oak Island or the Oak Island area and where additional information such as who shared a story could be found. Just a thought. Keep listening. Jeff. So what Jeff is referring to here is, again, the author James DeMille, who published a novel in 1873. I think my... Memory might be sketchy there, but something like that, uh, called The Treasure of the Seas. It was one of many of his novels, and in it, he talks about Oak Island and also specifically about the 90-foot stone. Now, you can go back and have a listen to that podcast he mentions from January of 2020, um, and I go through a lot of this. It really is an interesting chapter in the life and times of the 90-foot stone. Jeff, you could be correct about this. Uh, DeMille was a professor I think at Dalhousie um, a University in Halifax. I don't think it was St. Mary's. I think it was Dalhousie. Um, anyway, perhaps there are some records in his memoirs, if such a thing exists even, of any time he might have spent on Oak Island or seeing the stone firsthand himself. But honestly, my guess is if there were such a memoir, those would have been uncovered and referenced by treasure hunters already. Knowing Doug Kroll a little bit, um, it doesn't seem like something that would get past him. Here, here's the thing. Like I said, the professor wrote many, many books. He was not known as an expert on Oak Island, nor was the subject one he ever even employed again in any of his books, as far as I know. 
my guess is rather than researching Oak Island and going and doing all this stuff, he was probably working with popular lore, popular legend, maybe a slightly better knowledge than the average person walking around Halifax would have on a subject that, you know, was extremely popular at the time in the area he lived. But again, I'm going to send your your suggestion along to Doug and see what he says and what I can come up with. The most interesting thing the professor says about the stone in his book, for those who don't know, is this passage where one of the characters is describing it. The character says, quote, they have the impudence to say that it isn't an inscription at all. Actually, because no one can decipher it, they say it ain't an inscription. They say it's only some accidental scratches. And to me, it's interesting that if the professor is actually writing this passage here using you know what I would call sort of the local understanding of the legend as his guide, which from the rest of what he writes, that really does seem to be the case. Then even back in the 1870s, people were questioning the legitimacy of the stone and whether or not it even had an inscription on it. Again, go have a listen to that podcast from a year ago. The Tale of the 90-Foot Stone is certainly a fascinating one. Thanks, Jeff. Let's go to Tim in Canada who writes, Hi, Dave. I haven't been following all the boards as closely this year, so I don't know if this has already come up. It's regarding a few episodes back. Anyway, I figured you're the best one to ask. I'm reading Joy Steele's book, and I just noticed a map on page 11. It's apparently from a 1969 newspaper article. I just found it interesting that right where I think the mysterious serpent mound is, the map shows a quote-unquote pirate rock piles. Is this just another example of the producers making something out of something that was probably well-known since at least 1969? Probably. I understand. It's TV, right? Anyway, just wanted to share this with you. Thanks, Tim from Winnipeg. Tim, just the look of the map itself seems a bit, oh, I don't know. What's the right word? Whimsical, maybe? (laughs) I'm not sure if the cartoonist who drew it, it was really going for accuracy, but still, you do have a point here with this. Was the Serpent Mound feature really a new find? To Oak Island treasure hunters. I mean, if you remember the show told us that Doug Kroll was just like wandering around in the area and saw it and snapped some photos. And that's why they started examining it. Anyway, I put your question to the book's author, Gordon Fader, and he had this to say. Well, the features are close to the location of the so-called serpent mound that we now know is just a pile of till that Nolan plowed. But in that same area are several other maps that show distinct piles of boulders about 12 feet across that form a triangular pattern. I think they are just piles to get them out of the farmer's fields. I have a picture of one that may be one of the piles of rocks. It's more like a monument. It takes a lot of work to build these things, and a tractor does it easily, but to do it by hand takes much effort. Mr. Fader also added, quote, Fred Nolan knew all, the, all about these things as he mapped with high detail, but kept it all to himself. So I think, Tim, the question here is, did the artist get this information from someone on the island? Did Fred build these mounds before 1969? The Serpent Mound is what he ac- was actually drawing here, or, or is it something else entirely? Considering how secretive Fred Nolan was, I'm not sure we're ever going to find out. But your question was specifically, is this just another example of the producers making something out of something that was probably well known since at least 1969? I guess the answer would have to be without talking to the artist. There is really no way to know, but it certainly seems like evidence of that being possible. I mean, I can't even tell you if this artist was ever themselves on Oak Island. Thanks, Tim. 
I'll put the map uh, that Tim refer- is referring to here on our Facebook page, so you can go check it out for yourself and, and see what you think. Now, our friend Daryl and I went back and forth for about a week or so about this ring bolt they found a couple of weeks back in the swamp, what the size of the bolt indicated. And, and we were thinking, and Daryl was thinking, that maybe like some ring bolts you see on docks now, can, you know, in, in, in this day and age, um, there would be another ring attached to it. So you'd have this bolt driven into the dock and then a larger ring kind of hanging off it. And that larger ring is just missing. Um, The last email Daryl wrote, he said this, last evening I was watching a YouTube video with guest Carmen Legg. During the interview, Carmen said the anchor was an eye bolt and never would have had the ring. I think this explanation may have been omitted from the show. Although all this isn't a big deal, clarity is important when imagining what type of boat would have used this eye bolt. Now, I mentioned this little exchange uh, with Daryl and I because I've seen many examples of this same conversation the two of us had among other fans on social media. So what we can conclude from Carmen's expertise is that the bolt we saw was indeed the bolt any vessel would be tied directly to. And that means, and I've said this before, but it's important just to note this that we can say for sure that any such vessel would have to be kind of comparatively small. Again, certainly not a ship, right? Certainly not this 200-foot thing that they keep telling us is in the swamp. Uh, Thanks, Daryl. This information might not be a big deal, as you say, but it might be very important to keep in mind as the season progresses and more theories about the swamp are bandied about. Thanks for all your hard work again, my friend. Let's go to Darren. I don't know if it's Duran or Darren on Facebook. I'm going to go with Darren just because it's easier to come out of my mouth here. Um, He writes, loving the podcast. Keep up the great work. Can't wait uh, each week to listen. Thank you, sir. My question is, legend states that seven men must die before the treasure is revealed. Any information on how, why, or who came up with the curse? Okay, honestly, sir, there, there isn't a good answer to this. It is true that Oak Island has been considered, oh, I don't know, a mysterious or haunted place for many decades, even before the show and even before this curse. Whether you believe that stuff or not, there are a lot of legends that surround the island. But the fact is such tales, how do I put this, sort of tales like this seem to go hand in hand with many treasure hunts. I mean, almost all of them, really, when you think about it. Um, I mean... Think about it, right? If you buried a treasure, or even if you think you might be onto finding a treasure somewhere, what's a great way of keeping other people away from it? Make up a curse or some kind of creepy legend or haunting that can scare off any sort of innocent bystanders. Make sense? Now, with regards to this particular curse, try and try as I have to find an origin for this. I just can't. I mean, not until after the sixth man was killed. At least at that point, I start to maybe see something that references these kind of things. Some say, a lot of people say this was just made up by the show. While others say it originated, you know, decades back, a few decades back. I think the best explanation is probably that it originated or at least began picking up steam, you know, sometime shortly after 1965 when the fourth, fifth, and sixth men all died on the same day what is in what is called the rest all tragedy. For many, many reasons, um, seven is a big number with legends and conspiracies. So you can see how that particular one might have started and picked up steam back then after that faithful day in 1965. 
And can I offer you a little honesty here, Darren? Uh, I am a tried and true skeptic when it comes to things such as hauntings or curses. Of all the crazy things associated with Oak Island, this one is the least interesting to me. So I'm saying that because maybe a listener out there has a much better perspective on this. If so, if you have anything to add on this curse and when it might have originated or what it might mean, email it to me so we can get uh, this listener a much better answer than the one I gave you there. <laughs> anyway, thanks for writing. Please keep writing. Okay, let's hear from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and another friend of the show, Matt, who writes, Hey, Dave, just wanted to give you my thoughts about the big discovery from this season's Oak Island, the Swamp Road. First off, I do believe the Swamp Road was constructed by human beings. My only issue is the time and manpower it would take to build a road of that size. The Swamp Road seems pretty per- like a pretty permanent structure. I have no idea how long it would take to build this road using simple tools, but I can imagine it would take a lot of people a pretty long time to accomplish it. Why would individuals who were on the island to hide something of great value spend so much effort on a road that was simply for transporting treasure to the burial location? Burying the treasure would be an incredible undertaking in itself. I can't imagine the depositors would want to add building a road to their list of things to do. Furthermore, The road would be visible from the shoreline and would be like a giant neon sign advertising to all passing ships that something significant was transported and may reside somewhere on the island. I think that the Swamp Road was constructed by the British sometime during the 18th century and and that Oak Island was a waypoint or emergency port for English ships during the various wars with the French. While this hypothesis does not rewrite the history of Canada, it does provide a new twist on the historical importance of Oak Island. All of this is simply conjecture, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work. Matt from Havertown, Pennsylvania. Matt, you never failed to get me thinking. I got to tell you this. Um, I'm trying to reserve my conclusions on this road and really all this stuff we're seeing in the swamp at least until the end of the season, to get a better look at what we're actually seeing here, kind of a better, bigger picture. But if you're going to push me, if you're going to insist I give you something, Matt, then I would say I have to agree at least with that concept. I'm not so sure that this road and the other one from last season too would be related to any possible treasure being buried at the money pit. At the moment, I really don't see a correlation between the two other than that they are both from what is obviously an unrecorded event, but there's no reason right now to believe that it's the same event, right? Also, it bears mentioning that if they are actually related, then I think our understanding of what and where the treasure might be and what it might, what, what, you know, what it might be is not really very close to reality. I can't see all the things like, you know, a couple of pirate chests or even some religious artifacts or even the, you know, what are some of the other things? The lost manuscripts would require a road to, to go. I mean, these things sound like something that could be put on a dinghy and tied up at a beach and walked into wherever you want them to go. Now, again, conjecture, that's all I'm going to say for now. Matt, I'm leaning in your direction, but... Uh, for sure, but let's see if we still believe this by season's end. Okay, let's go to Eric on Facebook who writes, I'll eat my hat <laughs> if after years of searching and us all heckling the show producers, they find that it really was the Templars. Well, Eric, I'll join you in that meal, my friend. Uh, I'll tell you this, as the show continues its work 
the idea, at least in my mind, of the Templars being responsible gets less and less likely. I think 10 years ago, I would have to put the Templars in the category of the possible in my mind, but not anymore. Anyway, if I'm wrong, I'll happily grill up my hat and join you in a meal. And finally, we got this from our friend Jesse, who writes, This week looks like the week that may redeem itself from last week's letdown. I've watched and rewatched the preview of this week, and it seems they are making headway on this week's episode. Well, Jesse, why don't we take a short break and come back and see if you're right? Anyway, don't forget, folks, you can email me any questions or comments you have to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. So let's begin our discussion of Season 8, Episode 16 of The Curse of Oak Island called Leatherbound. We begin, at least our little review here, with a quick stop over at Lot 25. This is the location of the home of the late Samuel Ball. Now, I know I've promised to get off this kick of pointing out every time the narrator says this incredibly annoying line of thought about Samuel Ball could only have become rich by finding a treasure as opposed to just from hard work and intelligence. But I really can't help myself this week. <laughs> In this scene, the narrator bloviates, quote, Samuel Ball would mysteriously become one of the richest men in the province. So I put it to you, dear listeners. Is he correct? Was Samuel Ball indeed one of the richest men in all of Nova Scotia during the early 1800s? I mean, I would expect one of the richest men in all of Nova Scotia during the first half of the 19th century would have, you know, a mansion or maybe more than one. (laughs) He would have had many, many servants and also many descendants who that huge amount of wealth would be passed down to. I mean, I don't think Nova Scotia was a barren, you know, (laughs) frontier. I think by the 1820s and 1830s, there were people with quite a lot of wealth in a big port such as Halifax. Was Samuel Ball one of those most rich people in all of Nova Scotia? I don't think so. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in Nova Scotia in the 1820s or the 1830s or the 1840s, there weren't any mansions. There weren't any really rich people. And Samuel Ball was indeed living in a modest house with one servant on an island in the middle of nowhere, one of the richest men in all of Nova Scotia. What do I know? I don't live in Nova Scotia. Heck, I've never even been there. So maybe I'm wrong. Okay, maybe I'm overdoing it here a bit. I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. But I don't want to pose as an expert in this when I really am not one. So again, if we have any experts listening, if we have any people who are from Nova Scotia who know of the rich families, you know, is Samuel Ball one of the Rockefellers of Nova Scotia? I have no idea. Feel free to let me know. Island at gmail.com. Anyway, I digress here. Rick Lagina and Gary Drayton are over detecting on Lot 25. And it's interesting here how they pointed out that archaeologist Laird Niven had granted them permission to do so. They pointed out that more than once on the show here. That must have been for the benefit of any government watchdogs who might be watching the episode. And that stops. I want to stop there because 
one of the there's there's a list of about 10 or 15 questions that you see people bring up on social media and even to me over and over again and one of the most famous ones one of the ones you get the most is why doesn't Gary Drayton ever dig his own stuff and I think that kind of got um uh, what's the word I'm looking for you know, G Gary has in, in this scene, Gary has detected already and he's placed these little ping flags and then he brings back Rick, I guess, to uh, yes, it was Rick to do the digging. And I guess that had a lot of people asking. So not only is he not doing his own digging, but here he goes and detects and he needs to bring somebody else back to do the digging. Why doesn't Gary dig so mysterious? Why doesn't Gary dig? So I actually asked Laird Niven and basically without quoting him, Laird told me that this is a production um, idea. They just didn't want Gary alone. They wanted Gary to have somebody to talk to, somebody to share the experience with. So they always bring somebody else in. However, in this particular scene and on this particular place, Gary was allowed to detect and put his hits, and then he needs the permission of the archaeologist on hand to actually go and dig them. So that's why he did the, the little pink flags and then needed to come back. Now, he could have come back and dug himself, but again, it's a decision by the producers to have two people doing this. So anyway, he puts his pink flags down, and now he and Rick are back to dig them up. And they find a couple of little artifacts, including what looked like the remains of a maybe an old lead musket ball, part of perhaps a pocket watch, it looked like, the back of it, and also a little flat button. Now, as I was watching these scenes, I was thinking to myself that this seemed a little disappointing, you know? These things they were finding seemed exactly like one the kind of things one would expect to find in an old homestead and not really very revealing or fascinating. But later on in the show, when we get to the swamp, we will see really what this scene was all about. So let's head over there next. So as promised, let's head over to the swamp and talk about the work done there this in this week's episode. The episode itself actually begins with Rick and Marty getting out of their suburbans or whatever it is and checking in with archaeologists Aaron Taylor and Miriam Emerald. And this scene here makes me wonder, just a little side note, if we're actually getting closer to the fall and maybe getting towards the end of the season. See a lot of long sleeves and jackets, and uh, I think Taylor had like a hoodie sweatshirt on. Get a little colder. Now listen, I've been on the coast of Maine in, in uh, <laughs> middle of August or in the beginning of August and needed that stuff too, so it might not be, but just something made me think about. Also, the scene really gives us a great look at what has been uncovered, and the archaeologists have done their thing, and they've really cleaned this off. And I think someone, I think Marty remarks that it looks almost like a Roman road. And now instead of just looking like a pile of stones, it almost looks like cobblestone. The way it was almost in some places looks like these stones were moved to be flattened out. Now remember, it's been under a lot of stuff for a while. So things get moved around. But man, you really get a, a good look at it. It is definitive in my mind now what this was. This was a road. It was instructed at an incredible cost of labor uh, in order to create a solid surface in an otherwise boggy ground. Why or by who? I have no idea, but it is clear to me now from looking at this scene that that's what this is. Now, the team is still working here on finding out where exactly this goes and how far maybe it extends, and I think we're going to be doing that for a couple more weeks. 
Marty gets behind the wheel of the excavator uh, up at what looks like the northeast corner of the swamp, and they're starting to find even more of this road. And somehow, and it's confirmed by Steve Guptill, and you can see how he does it, right? He comes down and he can measure these rocks that they're finding. They're still under a lot of dirt, so they're not so sure. Oh, is this the road yet? They haven't uncovered it all. Uh, but he can see that this is at exactly the same elevation as the rest of the stone road, which is one and a half feet above sea level. It's a fascinating little nugget of information in Dave's mind. I don't know why, but I found it fascinating. One of the things I thought was was cool is I think Rick said to him, well, how far off is it from the rest of it? And he looked at him and said, it's not far off at all. It's not off at all, period. It's exactly the same. So so you get a, an idea of how they're confirming this. And at least that gives them a... Um, you know, the green light to keep uncovering what's here and seeing if it all matches. Now, later on in another scene, we still have Marty on the excavator, and Aaron Taylor is joined now by Craig Tester and archaeologist Liz Michaels. In, in the beginning of this scene, Michaels makes a comment here that I really didn't get. I'm still not sure what it means. Something about how they're finding the coal only on one end of the road and something about topping up of the rubble, about it being at the topping up of the rubble. I, I, did anyone get what she was saying there? That no explanation was given. They didn't show us where on the road this is. If, if you're following that train of thought, let me know. Um, but I couldn't figure out what she was saying. And I've watched it a couple of times, and, I, and I'm not sure. I think it was just the you know I, I I think the producers and the editors just put it in as a you know as a kind of little conversation and not meant as information or anything really for us. Anyway, I, let me continue. Taylor soon pulls out a piece of leather from in between the rocks. And it has notches in it, um, like it was sewn to something, I think. Now, okay, here's another thing that everybody on social media mentions. Did he, was it planted there? No, folks, it's not planted there. However, <laughs> it is possible that, and probably true, that he found it, put it back exactly where he found it, and called the cameras over, <laughs> and then took it out again. You understand? There's nothing there's nothing dishonest about that. There's nothing intellectually wrong about that. It's just something to do for the benefit of you, the viewer, okay? It would be a lot less boring if we just saw him holding this thing and say, oh, look what I found. Instead, they give us the opportunity to see exactly where he found it and have him sort of recreate where he was and what he was doing and where this piece was. I think it's all fine. I have no problem with that, but that stuff gets asked all the time. And let's be honest. Just where he found it makes it interesting, right? This is between these stones. And also remember, this isn't just between stones. These are This is between two stones that have been under a large layer of dirt, of mud, and water for years and years. So later on, Charles Barkhouse and Doug Kroll take this little sample up to Joe Landry. He's a bookbinding expert. We've talked about it a bit. We've seen him many times before. He says it's very thick like cowhide, and then he thinks it might be Frank gets very confident in this. The, the strap from a leather, larger leather-bound ledger or a logbook, these big logbooks that have a buckle on them to hold them together. Uh, Landry compares it to books he's worked on from the 1500s and even the 1600s. And, and he seems, again, very certain. Even though there's just this one little piece of leather, um, he is fairly convinced that this is indeed from a logbook. He also says that if they test it, they can determine what was actually used in the tanning process for the leather. 
and that could give them a place of origin for where this was actually made. Let's see if we get any follow-up on this one. Put this one in the back of your minds, and let's see if we hear more on this little piece of leather, and if it actually does tell us something about who was here and when. Later on the episode, the team is back in the swamp. They're Now they're examining way further up into the uplands on the east side of the swamp. And Rick starts pulling out a piece of pottery. Now, Taylor says that this might be what he calls earthenware. Um, Aaron calls it very crude. Aaron Taylor calls it very crude. Um, actually, I love this scene. Sticks his tongue on it to confirm whether or not it's earthenware. He says this is like an old trick of archaeologists. Um, basically, what this indicates to us is that this crude early earthenware means this comes from the time when very early on in the Europeans coming to North America. sixteen He says 1604 up until when the British actually settle here. Um, and basically what that means is when they were here earlier, they didn't have sort of the ability to get kilns and fire hot enough to make the kind of fine finished pottery that we would see later on. So this is basically kind of crude, made uh, you know on a frontier sort of situation. And really does sort of date what we're looking at here. And this brings us to this interesting question of why we're not seeing so many artifacts in this area. Now, think about it. We mentioned this before in the previous section in the uh, email section. This is going to take, to build this road, what we're looking at here took time, took a lot of effort, and it took a lot of men, right? Right? These guys didn't drop any tools. No buttons came off their shirts. This is the same that we say in Smith's Cove when they did the Smith's Cove thing, right? They weren't drinking water and then dropped what they were drinking or broke something. Um, they weren't eating and then broke the pot or pottery that they were eating and that kind of stuff. Where is all of this stuff? And that brings us back to Samuel Ball, Right to the, what we're seeing over there. And that scene with Rick and Gary doing their thing at the Samuel Ball residence. Sure, those three things weren't important, but look at how many of those pink flags are there, right? And look at how many little pieces of what may be Samuel Ball's life, even if they're not very significant, even if it's just a piece of his watch or, or a part of a musket ball or a piece of pottery, whatever it is. Look at how many they're found, finding there and they're not finding anywhere near that over here. One little tiny piece of earthenware, some coal, and that's really it. But yet this had to be a place where a lot of people were working and moving things. And where did all of it go? And Aaron Taylor says this really fascinating quote. He says, it's almost like they were cleaning up after themselves as they went along. And why would you do that? Man, that is such a great question. It really is a fascinating little turn of events in all of this. Same as it was for me in the Smith's Cove stuff. Where is all the evidence of the work done here and the people who did that work? It just doesn't seem to be there. And then I think it was Miriam Amaral who, fin and we'll finish off with this quote, and I think this is great. The fact that there are, she says, quote, the fact that there are no artifacts may be just as telling as if there were a bunch. Now, again, She's not inferring anything. She's just saying that the fact that there are no artifacts could be an incredibly important piece of information. Keep that all in mind as we continue at the swamp.
Okay, so now let's talk about the money pit area. It's getting pretty interesting over here for sure. And this first scene we see has geologist Terry Matheson now joined by Scott Barlow and Paul Troutman, who seems to be back to work on the island and again part of the team. They're digging a hole that they've labeled C4.5. And they tell us, they're giving us a lot of information about where things are now. This is something they're not, I'm not used to. They tell us this is exactly two and a half feet west of C5 and also from this little graph they put up a few feet northeast of C1. At a depth of 87 and a half feet, I think they say, they hit wood, which for reasons that are hard to explain here on a podcast, really have Terry Matheson convinced that what he hit here was the top of a tunnel. I think it's really important to keep in mind that the top of a tunnel, if that's what this is, and he's convinced it is, means that they are not onto the money pit here. Remember, the money pit collapsed, okay? It would not be in shape. It would not be in place at 88 feet. At 88 feet, it would have already collapsed down further than that. Also, the money pit didn't have a tunnel running sideways. It was just a shaft going down. So, and remember what the money pit is. The money pit is two things. It is the place where we think a treasure is buried at the bottom, but it's also the spot where the very first people looked for the treasure. So what we're seeing here with wood is probably being thought of as the original searchers who in fact knew exactly where it was. Does that all make sense? Um, so anyway, if this is a tunnel, we're not at the money pit. We're someplace could be close. Don't know yet. Later, the team shows their findings to Rick, and Rick starts to think, starts talking about some interesting stuff here. For instance, he says, quote, this program is solely dedicated to finding the money pit, end quote. And I think it's just interesting to say that what he's indicating here isn't really a change from what they've said from the beginning, the stated goal here. Notice he's saying that the goal is to find the money pit, not <laughs> necessarily, and important distinction, to find the treasure. Remember what they're looking for here is data for the big dig. They want to know if they do do a big dig, number one, is it worth the money? And two, do they have enough information to know where to put this incredibly expensive big dig? Rick also says that based on what they have found over the years, that the money pit now has to be, he says, has to be somewhere west of C5 and north of C1. That's a paraphrase of what he's saying. It's not a direct quote. Just to explain, that means that they're looking in a place that's further north and further west than they have ever dug as far as I can tell. In fact, I think it was Marty who said something like um, that at the time they dug C1, and then now they want to go further north than this, right? The time they dug C1, it was considered too far away from where they were thinking the money pit would be found. So when Charles said, let's dig here, everybody else had this idea that, oh, really up there? That's way too far north. Marty actually says, quote, with all the data we acquired, a very simple answer as to why we haven't found it is because we weren't looking in the right place. And so if our data is leading us somewhere else, I'm very excited about that. Now, okay, <laughs> Obviously, I'm not here to rain in anybody's parade. There's more than one reason why they haven't found the money pit. It's not just because they aren't looking in the wrong place. Um, 
And there's also more than one place on Oak Island that they haven't looked. I understand all of that. I don't want to rain on Marty's parade. Uh, But it still is pretty interesting that we're finding evidence of a tunnel in a spot where we haven't really looked before. Maybe now we can at least come out of this season with a better picture of where this all is going. So later on in the show, we actually have another war room, one of these war room scenes where the team is gathered around and they're discussing this new tunnel or evidence of a tunnel that they have found. Uh, Craig Tester has some dating information. Now, this is dating information. He says this quickly, so it's important to keep this in mind. This is dating information from Borehole C5. This is not the borehole we saw them digging today. This is not That was C4.5. So this is from a couple of weeks back. Um, and what he says is there are two pieces of wood. One dates from 1726 to 1813, and the other from 1648 to 1694. I really was stunned <laughs> that the um, narrator didn't go off into a uh, could it be type of thing, but he didn't, um, especially with this second piece of wood. I was stunned that we didn't have some could it be thing from Clotworthy about how this is proof of whoever he wants to be there at the time. Uh, it, it It's more questions than answers. And Craig is right here. He says something, and I, and I don't know that I have the quote right here. I think he says something to the effect of um, not, here's what it wrote. This, he's not convinced with this, quote, not convinced by what we've seen so far that we really know what the heck is going on at all. I mean, it couldn't have said it better myself, right? This is information. It's great. There's this wood from the 17th century, but it's right next to wood that's clearly from a searcher era as well. So what are we finding here? Very, very puzzling. Now, usually these war, these war room scenes, when Craig has some information or some dating, is the end of the show. But not this time. <laughs> Instead, with only a couple of minutes left in the episode, we head back to the money pit to see Terry and Scott, Terry Matheson and Scott Barlow digging a new hole, which I think they called BC3, which is to the north, a few feet to the northwest of C1. And let me tell you, man, this made me sit up straight and I got excited. Why were we going back here for a quick two minute scene? Was this, was this going to be the cliffhanger? Was this going to be something that we find, something the team finds here that is truly exciting? I mean, I, everything is going through my head, right? Are we pulling a gold doubloon out of one of these uh, plastic bags of dirt or or maybe, uh, you know, a piece of paper that says to be or not to be? Who knows, right? I, w- I really was excited about this. They don't normally do this. And you would think that this is going to end with some sort of big cliffhanger. But instead, all we got was more wood at 88 feet. Now, again, it's not a treasure I understand it's not as exciting, but what we're seeing here now is that the team is able to basically essentially follow the path of a tunnel. And what I want to know now is what is this tunnel? Let's start getting some theories. Let's have Doug and Charles tell us what this tunnel could possibly be. Uh, You know, it's hopefully (laughs) a tunnel that leads to somewhere very exciting. (laughs) 
All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island Podcast. Please don't forget, if you don't already, subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. If you are enjoying the show, please, please, please rate and review us. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you can, uh, or wherever you listen. It helps to get the word out on the show. Somehow the Apple bots get out there uh, because of ratings and reviews. And that helps bring more listeners to the show. And a big thank you to everyone who has done so already. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do that. And also, I do appreciate the kind words for the show. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email. It's the best way. Island at gmail.com. You can also go through the social media and send me a direct message. Little warning. Keep in mind. If you send me an email or a message, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if for whatever reason you don't want your message read to the listening audience, just please make me a note of that. And don't forget, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. The Facebook page is great for a great place for me to put down a lot of these uh, photos and diagrams and stuff that we talk about. It's also a great way for you to follow the show and to interact with other listeners of the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.